Hey, coming up on today's episode of The Virtual Couch, we are going to talk about breaking bad habits. Yes, you can break that habit from your cell phone to any kind of destructive habits. We're going to talk about what creates a habit, what the habit cycle is all about, and how you change the reward system in any habit. And you can kind of, uh, what do the kids say these days, hack that entire habit system. That and more coming up on today's episode of The Virtual Couch. Episode 220 of The Virtual Couch. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father, four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography recovery program that is helping people like you reclaim their lives from the harmful effects of pornography. If you or anyone that you know is trying to put pornography behind you once and for all, and trust me, it can be done in a strength-based, hope-filled, become the person you always wanted to be way then please head to pathbackrecovery.com and there you will find a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography once and for all. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com and uh, fun, exciting things continue. TonyOverbay.com, the website has been updated, so I would love if you would head over there. My free parenting program, Parenting Positively Even in the Not-So-Positive of Times, is available there for free, and it will continue to be there for free. So please go and uh, find out how to be a better parent, even as you are continuing to, for many, shelter in place, your kids are around you, even more bless their little hearts. This is a free parenting program that teaches you how to parent better. So again, (laughs) pathbackrecovery.com is a wonderful place to go. That is the pornography recovery website, but uh, head over to tonyoverbay.com. There you will find the parenting, the free parenting workshop, parenting program. And I would highly encourage you to sign up for my newsletter because I've, I've been alluding to this. It is now being filmed, and that is a magnetic marriage program where we are going to talk about how to have a more magnetic marriage. So go to TonyOverbay.com. You'll be one of the first people to find out when that program is unveiled. And you can always head over to Instagram. Lots of heading over uh, to Instagram. Find me at Virtual Couch and also on Facebook, Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. So there is all of the business, so to speak. So let's get to today's podcast. Today is one of those that uh, I'm very excited about. I think, I, I admittedly, I'm excited about everything that I get to record. I still love the fact that I get to record a podcast. I love all the feedback. And on that note, send all your feedback to uh, through the contact form on my website, TonyOverbay.com. Or you can just skip that all together and send it to contact at TonyOverbay.com. If you have show ideas, if you have questions, if you want to be a guest on the virtual couch, if you want me to come speak anywhere, any of those things then uh, send send me an email. I would love to hear from you. So today's topic, this is coming from a website called realsimple.com. And my wife, who I love, bless her heart, she sends me things that she thinks that I would love to podcast about. And she's she's always spot on. And this is one about habits. And I love the the way the brain works. I love the concept of how habits are formed and equally as challenging is how we can break bad habits and how we can create new habits. So today has a little bit of all of that in there. I even get to debunk a pop psychology myth that I love to about how long it takes to create a new habit. And uh, one more plug, because I'm sitting here continuing to look up at a camera, uh, please head over to the Virtual Couch YouTube channel and um, getting more subscribers there. That's a lot of fun as well. And you can see this podcast in video form. So 
let, let's get to this. So I, I'm going to be referring to this article called, Yes, You Can Kick That Bad Habit. And that is from an author named Richard Jerome. And here's what I love. I was already drawn in by the title, Yes, You Can Kick That Bad Habit. But right underneath that, he says, and don't even think about white knuckling it. Here, science-based strategies to help you abandon your vices. And as a person who has worked with, when I was promoting my book, he's a porn addict, now what? Uh, an expert and a former addict answer your questions, which is still in there on the, the sexual health and recovery bestseller list on Amazon. And I'm grateful for that. And it is, if I haven't talked about the book in a while, but if you are struggling with betrayal trauma or addiction, or that is present in your relationship, or if you're a therapist who works with that, I highly recommend the book. It's there in paperback. It's also there in Kindle format. But we talk so much about uh, co-author Joshua Shea and I talk about addiction uh, and we talk about it so much. And one of the biggest uh, just things that does not work is this concept of white knuckling through an addiction. And what is white knuckling? It is just hanging on to dear life of sobriety so that your knuckles turn white and that that will work for some people at some times, but in the grand scheme of things, the long run, that is not an effective option. So Richard Jerome says, don't even think about white knuckling it. Here's some science-based strategies to help you abandon your vices. So um, he says, for years, I was smugly self-righteous about smartphones. That's what, and again, I love that we jump right in here because the smartphone, holy cow, talk about an old man, me being an old man. And, and, and saying the kids these days and their phones and recognizing that, you know, my teenagers have grown up with a phone as part of their life as long as they can remember. And this is the part where even in my parenting program, I talk about how when I grew up, if my dad was talking about records, I was talking CDs. So we were kind of on the same page. But I did not grow up with a smartphone. I barely grew up with, I mean, I can remember a very ginormous mobile phone when I was in my 20s, I think. I remember uh, cell phones when I first entered the computer industry, and uh, and they were not very small devices that did not do very many things. I remember getting my first, okay, this is not supposed to be a trip down memory lane, but I remember getting my first uh, texting plan where I think I had 200 texts a month, and I thought, I'll never use these. You know, you can do a couple hundred texts in a day. You know, uh, challenge me. And so I, he says, uh, I was smugly self-righteous about smartphones, rolling my eyes at all those people clutching their devices like rosaries or floating along sidewalks as if in a trance, transfixed by their virtual worlds, oblivious to the real one. He said big tech had hooked them, checking for posts and likes and swipes and breaking news had become unquenchable habit. And he said, pity the fools that would never happen to, uh, that was, that would never happen to somebody as savvy, as self-aware as the author, Richard Jerome. But then he says, uh, oh no, on November 9th, 2016, he launched a self-imposed news blackout designed to last for at least four years. First of all, Richard, um, bless your heart for believing that you could just immediately jump in with a four-year um, technology ban, news blackout. So then he said mid-2017 came around, um, all the things that had to do with Russian interference and the, investig and the elections. And he said, like that, I was drawn in again. Devouring cable TV analysis, speculation, following his favorite pundits on Twitter, his go-to platform, said sometimes he would check his newsfeed every few minutes, and I uh, didn't want to miss the slightest twist or turn or an incisive comment, and uh, he said it really did feel like this magnetic pull, and I like that description because I think often, I don't know if you've had this experience, whether yourself or witnessing those around you, where as soon as you have a moment where you're in line or you're just sitting there and you all of a sudden are aware of your environment, 
if you then immediately kind of check your phone, if you open your phone. I have watched people literally, um, it's almost like reflexively, they open up Instagram. And then it's almost like then they get off of Instagram because they realize. But then they realize, well, wait, I was just on Instagram. I don't know what I even saw on Instagram. So I better go back on there. And then you continue to scroll and scroll. And, uh, And he said one night his wife was talking to him. And he said, I can't tell you what she was saying. But because in between, uh-huh, those, 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 uh-hums, he said, I kept glancing down at my palm and scrolling. And she said, are you even listening to me? And then the gut punch, you've become one of those phone people. So have you become one of those phone people? I know that there at times I have become one of those phone people. And it's funny, there's so much psychology here that goes on. Uh, the more, the more um, busy that I get, and, and I, you know, I don't even really like that word, but the more emails I get, the more feedback I get, the more clients I see, the more uh, writing projects I have due, the more podcasts I want to do, the more programs I want to do, the more, the more, the more that I have found myself not having time for social media. And so, I again, my, my job here is to be vulnerable and authentic and raw and open and all of these things, right? So I find myself at times almost feeling this uh, air of self-righteousness. I have not checked Instagram for two days. And uh, no one gives me an award. Nobody gives me a prize. And if anything, I probably make those people around me feel worse because they, they, they are. They, maybe they are checking Instagram quite a bit or quite often. And so I, I've, I recognize that, that the busier I get, the less I am on social media, the more I feel like I've done something right. But I know that if I did not have all of these other things that were going on, there's a good chance I would be right back there scrolling through Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or, or looking at all these various things that are just so enticing in the palm of my hand in full retina display, you know, however many colors that is, just uh, waiting for me to scroll and try to find something interesting. Um, Richard Jerome said she was right as always. After a largely uh, uh, ab- abstem- abstemious life, a very fancy word, I'd gone to the dark side and developed a bad habit, not terrible in the moral scheme, but not good. Actually, bad habits, which he says is a catch-all for repetitive activities to distract, disgust, annoy, or at worst, damage oneself or others, are pretty universal. Some are social or psychological habits, such as chronic lateness or interrupting or procrastination. And he said, who among us hasn't avoided a tedious task with a nap, a snack, or a surfing cat video? I'm a big fan of dog fail videos myself, but I realize there are those cat videos out there as well. But he says many bad habits are physical, nail biting, hair pulling, cheek chewing, knuckle cracking, gum snapping, leg shaking, pin clicking, and more seriously, overeating, drinking, drugging, cutting, and self-harm. And in the age of COVID-19, many of us were stunned to realize how often we touch our faces, an innocuous habit the virus made potentially lethal. And in that paragraph alone is some gold there, that when we talk about habits, that uh, this catch-all for repetitive activities, bad habits in particular that he, he jumps right in there and says, you know, who hasn't avoided a tedious task with a nap, snack, or surfing cat video? So now we welcome uh, welcome to the acceptance and commitment therapy um, uh, time in the podcast. And again, my modality of choice, if you go on my website or search through any uh, Tony Overbay podcast and acceptance and commitment therapy, you'll find a lot of, uh, a lot of podcasts where I like to talk about this. And so when we, when we are bored or when we aren't engaged in something that really brings us value uh, or or relies or or turns to one of our own values, there is a concept called experiential avoidance. And that is that proverbial kicking the can down the road. I'll do it later. 
So I might uh, want to watch a few dog veil videos or I might want to take a quick nap or any of these things that then puts off a task. And, and what we're going to learn here as we kind of dig deeper into habits is that the more that you turn to that experiential avoidance, that taking a nap, that trying to find something else to do before you do the next thing that you're supposed to do, even that becomes a habitual pattern. And so we have to have awareness and, and kind of break out of that experiential avoidance. And, and so he says, certainly serious physical addictions require therapy, which I appreciate that, rehab, even expert treatment. But he said, of course, there are these do-it-yourself hacks and fixes to help us break garden variety habits. Um, or, or he's kind of asking the question, what are those? Most of the relatively few researchers in the field agree it's complicated. The reasons we develop habitual behaviors are as varied and unique as fingerprints. People tend to oversimplify habits, but the more you study them, the more complex they are. And that is so true. And, and I have found that even in my recovery work in the world of pornography, compulsive sexual behavior, um, if, and, and if you haven't listened to anything I've done there, I can understand that if that isn't necessarily your vice of choice, but the concepts are universal. And in, and let me kind of do, I wasn't going to go on this uh, bit of a tangent, but in that world of pornography and compulsive sexual behavior, I started working with men. I was working at this nonprofit and I'm getting guys in there and I'm doing the same thing where I'm saying, Hey, uh, let's identify your triggers. You know, you find out one of the main triggers with any kind of, you know, any kind of negative behavior, especially in the world of pornography or compulsive sexual behavior is I call them crimes of opportunity. It's boredom and nobody's around. And so when there's a trigger, then your brain says, uh, I can do the thing. I can, I can look at pornography. I can, you know, I can eat. I could do some, some compulsive behavior. So there's the trigger. Then you have that thought and then you have an action. And so I was working very much in the, all right, if we can't eliminate a trigger, that's great. If somebody's main trigger is opportunity, then, and they have a couple of hours free every morning after they drop the kids off and maybe their wife's at work, then can we eliminate that trigger? Can you go into the office early? Can you go study at the library? Can you use that time to exercise? And if for some reason the person can't necessarily adjust that trigger, then when they have the thought, you want to put distance between thought and action. And so you can do that one of two ways. The first is behavioral. So you can do something behavioral, run outside, call a friend, do some push-ups, any of those kind of things. Write your grandma, um, you know, text a friend. And true story, when I was doing work early with pornography, compulsive sexual behavior, and I was working with a fair amount of teenagers, I used to think I was pretty clever and I wanted them to text me a picture of the grossest thing that was in their fridge. And I always had this desire, this dream that I would have this uh, secret place you could click on my webpage and find a, a picture of all the gross things that someone had in their fridge. And I never followed through on that, but I had... I remember the best was some 20-year-old bullion cubes, although, quite frankly, a 20-year-old bullion cube is probably fine, And it, although I don't endorse eating a 20-year-old bullion cube if there are bullion cube experts that are listening to the virtual couch. But uh, very, very, uh, I had a lot of moldy cheeses. I think that was a, a favorite. But breaking that, putting distance between that thought and action was the real key, and that's where the concept of mindfulness eventually rules the day of being able to be aware of your thought and put that space in there, that distance between thought and action. But so the, the, the big, you know, kind of the big thing to do was work in that world of behavioral modifications, things that you could do, but eventually you may be in this position where you can't go out and uh, climb the fire escape, or so you really wanted to work on the mental part of that, the the you know, working on the, um, 
the being changing your relationship with thoughts is is what uh, what you need to do. So back to the article, the reason I went on that tangent is is then the author Richard Jerome says people uh, the reasons we develop habits and behaviors are as varied and unique as fingerprints. So you could have the the habitual pattern. And it's not as simple as just saying, hey, just do push-ups or just write a letter or just change your relationship with your thoughts because what led up to those triggers are pretty unique to each individual because that goes into all of one's nature and nurture and DNA and birth order and their abandonment stories and rejection and how much they had, had kind of given into their addiction over the years, how much they had tried to stop. Was there an element of shame that was involved? So I really like that uh, where he says varied and unique as fingerprints. Um, he quotes uh, Fred Penzel, who is a MD and a PhD, um, a Huntington, New York psychologist who specializes in body-focused repetitive behaviors, such as nail or cheek biting or hair or skin pulling, among others, who says people tend to oversimplify habits, but the more you study them, the more complex they are. Treating these habits takes a lot of detective work. He said, we take a very comprehensive approach and do a careful behavioral analysis to determine what all the person's inputs are. And, and I like this concept of what their inputs are. Environmental, sensory, cognitive, and emotional. So you've got all of those components that can go into any habit. Again, we're not just talking about one of these uh, you know, compulsive or body-focused repetitive behaviors, or we're not even talking about uh, a compulsive sexual behavior, like turning to pornography as a coping mechanism. So um, Richard Jerome says, habits have a power, this powerful evolutionary and neurological underpinnings and that they are essential for human survival. So here's where things get interesting. So that's one reason bad habits, which operate under the same systems as good or useful ones, are so hard to kick because our whole lives are suffused by habits. Um, he also quotes Russell Poldrack, PhD, a professor of psychology at Stanford University, who says, think about everything you do when you get up in the morning. You're not at each moment thinking things like, now I've got to brush my teeth, now I've got to put grounds into the coffee maker. He says you do it automatically. If we didn't have habits, we'd be completely overtaken by this need to make decisions at every point. And so habits run constantly in the background, um, indispensable yet uh, unobtrusive as Muzak, which is that music that plays when you're in the elevator. So think about that. If our, our brain is designed to create these habit cycles, and in the book... Um, uh, the Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And I talked about this. Actually, this was on a, a short YouTube video, I believe, that I, that I made a few weeks ago. But think of the way the brain works with habits. The brain um, is designed to want to live forever. That is its goal. And for some reason, the brain believes that it is operating from this finite amount of energy or power. So your brain wants to do all it can to go into a resting state or it wants to use as little electrical activity as possible, thus comes the work of habits. So when you do some repetitive task or some repetitive thought or behavior, then that over time, your brain says, hey, if I put this in this little part of my brain called the basal ganglia, the habit center, then I don't have to burn as many mental calories to do this task. So whether it's backing out of the driveway, whether it's brushing your teeth, whether it's tying your shoes, so when your brain says, we do this a lot, then I'm going to put that into the habit center. And so then whenever these triggers, I wake up in the morning, I see shoes, my brain knows what to do. We're, going to, we're tying these bad boys. And so it takes less electrical activity to do that out of this habit center, this basal ganglia of the brain. So our, our brains are designed to find patterns 
and, uh, and, and these create these habits, these habitual patterns. And again, what can be tricky is so now you can see there can be a good habit. So I am going to tie my shoes. I'm going to brush my teeth. I know at the end of the evening when I brush my teeth, uh, throw a little floss in there, which took me forever to create a habit with that, and then uh, do some mouthwash. You know, that that's a habit that I don't even really have to think about. And uh, and I just I have to have that feeling in my mouth before I go to bed. You know, my brain is, is throwing all kinds of signals that we must do this. There have been nights. Actually, last night, my wife and I went on a, a late night run. And I was I was pretty exhausted, and I was, uh, I was eating a snack or two. I'm, I'm in bed, probably not a good uh, habit to do. And I thought, you know what? One night, I'm just going to go to sleep. I'm not going to get up and brush my teeth because I'm so tired. But man, as I'm starting to to fall asleep, my brain says, "You didn't brush your teeth. You need that mouthwash feeling. You can't go to bed, so you have that mouthwash feeling. Get up, go brush your teeth." And I got up and brushed my teeth and uh, lived happily ever after. So though, so our brain, again, wants to find patterns of behavior and file these in that basal ganglia, that habit center. So he says the reason habits evolved is because our conscious attentional bandwidth is very narrow. And that's a, that's a concept that I haven't really thought of or worked with much where, you know, if we had to make all of these decisions constantly, do I tie my shoes? How do I tie my shoes? Do I get in the car? Now, how do I drive this car again? Our, our brains would be overwhelmed. That's just too much data. And back to that book, Atomic, ha- not Atomic Habits, that's one that I'm reading right now. Um, but uh, The Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg, he has a chapter in there where he does talk about some, some data, some research that um, shows how we can hit a, uh, our, I like to think of it as our brain sponge can be full because we've made so many decisions that day. So, you know, we, we have to almost look at this like our brains are saying enough. I've made enough decisions. So, uh, you know, it wants to put as many things into, again, this habit center as possible. So, uh, again, that quote, he says, the reason habits evolved is because our conscious attentional bandwidth is very narrow, says psychologist Elliot Berkman, PhD, the director of the University of Oregon Social and Effective Neuroscience Lab. He said, we essentially developed a separate brain system that can offload easily repetitive tasks and it frees up space for stuff that's really hard. What a great quote. So how exactly does a habit form, good or bad? Uh, the magical ingredients are a cue, some environmental or psychological triggers, then a behavior and a reward, Berkman explains. The reward, he adds, is the glue that holds the process together. Think of learning to drive. And uh, he says it's actually quite hard how far to turn the wheel, what to do with your feet. But very quickly, you learn there are cues like a green light. You move your foot to the gas pedal and you press it just so. The reward is that the car moves forward as you want it to go. Before long, you don't have to think about any of that. But bad habits piggyback on that same cue behavior reward cycle. So uh, he goes on to say that neurologically, habits operate through the brain's reward-based learning system, which relies on the release of dopamine. I talk about dopamine so often on this podcast because as a card-carrying member of the uh, ADD or more specifically ADHD uh, inattentive type um, club, card-carrying member of that club, the my brain wants more dopamine. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's it doesn't get enough dopamine. So when when you know I become hyper focused on something, the brain's like, "There we go. There's that dopamine." I mean, we want this dopamine through this reward center of the brain. So he says, "Dopamine, this neurotransmitter which conveys chemical information between neurons, plays a key role in crucial bodily activities from learning and emotion." to kidney function, heart rate, and sleep. So one really important thing dopamine does is it signals when the world turns out better than you expected it to be. 
But what, a, what an amazing phrase to talk about what dopamine does, the reward center of the brain. That Let me read that again. One really important thing dopamine does is it signals when the world turns out better than you expected it to be. Uh, that's according to Poldrack. So that is, if you try a new activity that works surprisingly well, you get a little shot of dopamine. And that, in turn, strengthens the connections between neurons involved in choosing that action. So the next time you're in that same situation, you're more likely to do that same thing. In a way, dopamine helps cement neurological processes that create habits. So uh, dopamine, he adds, responds to novelty. And this is what I've actually learned in this book, The uh, Atomic Habits, which has been pretty fascinating. It rewards, it responds novelty. It responds to novelty. That is why it's easily triggered by many habits we consider bad. So today our reward-based learning systems are under constant assault by stimuli carefully designed to make us crave more, whether it's craving a food, a beverage, or a social media feed. So he says that our brains weren't adapted to the level of stimulation that we get from all sorts of things in the modern world. Uh, Poldrack uh, says, um, certainly the drugs people become addicted to or foods engineered to be highly palatable or technological devices that give us so much novel information are all effective at driving the development of habits. So think about that concept alone, that um, dopamine responds to novelty. So every time that you grab your phone, and what are you doing? You're responding to this novelty or this, um, there, there could be new information there. And so every time, that's why the scroll-based uh, system is so effective because, and I've been victim to this so many times, if I'm just mindlessly scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, it is this little bit of a, your, your brain's throwing a tiny bit of dopamine, like what could be next? What could be next? What could be next? And so you can see that the more you do that, the more you're just strengthening this uh, dopamine reward-based system. So knowing how entrenched bad habits are, um, the author, Richard Jerome says, what's the best way to overcome them? The time-honored prescription is to buck up and exercise some self-control. There's that white-knuckling approach. Again, that is not the way to effectively overcome habits. He says, hooked on nachos or Marlboros, simply stop, but it rarely works because habit formation is such a powerful system that it's easier to work within it rather than to override it, uh, according to Berkman. Um, white knuckling it, trying not to do something is very hard. He said, indeed, and I love this. I just did an episode on this uh, as well, um, or a YouTube video on this, a very short YouTube video on this. Uh, have you ever tried to not think of a person, a place, or an object? You know, this is that uh, try not to think of the white polar bear wearing a tutu playing a saxophone. I mean, I would imagine you probably thought about that at this point. So when you when you tell yourself, don't think of something, this is why thought suppression doesn't work. Your own brain has that psychological reactance, that instant negative reaction of being told what to do. So when you tell yourself, don't think about something or don't do something or don't crave something or, you know, don't turn to some vice, your brain has reactance. It says, I can do whatever the heck I want. So, so I love that uh, Berkman said that we have to work within the system, not try to override the system. So um, if, if you, the, he says the same applies to habits. There's this phenomenon known as be, a behavioral rebound. A 2008 study published in the Journal of Appetite, for instance, found that participants who attempted to suppress thoughts about eating chocolate turned out to consume significantly more chocolate than those who didn't. So if I'm trying not to touch my face, I can do that as long as I'm thinking, all right, uh, don't touch your face. But then all of a sudden, he says, I'm going to try to work on a report. And as soon as I'm not thinking about it, the habits kick in and I'm touching my face. Maybe a lot of us have experienced that during COVID-19. So he said, that's why it makes more sense. Here's the key. This is so good. 
why it makes more sense to focus on doing new things rather than concentrating on not doing the old things. And, and that is so key. He said, instead of trying to stop something, take action and start something new. Fill your pocket with sugarless gum instead of cigarettes or reach for a stick instead of a smoke. Toss the beer from your fridge and drink water or seltzer instead. Pencils devised a list of mostly tactile alternative activities for his patients dealing with body-focused repetitive behaviors. Um, it also helps eliminate objects or routines that cue our habits, says Berkman. And that could be something as simple as tossing all the ashtrays in your home or steering clear of your favorite tavern. And he says, be patient, though. And this is the key. Here comes the, I love this. I've done multiple episodes where I mentioned this next fact. He said, um, be patient. A study in the European Journal of Social Psychology found that it took an average of, I almost want to say uh, right now, how many days does it take to break a habit? I want you to think about that. And how many of you right now said, takes three weeks, takes 21 days? Because people tell me that all the time. And I remember hearing that, and that's the pop psychology. If you go look that up, I believe the, I want to say that it was a plastic surgeon. I think it was uh, Michael or Maxwell Maltz. And it was in one of the world wars. One or two, a plastic surgeon that accompanied the troops did uh, wrote a, a write-up that said that people that were missing limbs, that it took them about three weeks to finally stop feeling this phantom pain or phantom you know, of, of an arm or a leg that was no longer there. So he wrote, it took about three weeks. And so people jumped on that, motivational speakers, psychologists, and they said, okay, that must mean that the brain after three weeks can uh, form these new neuropathways. And people have run with that for 50, 60, I think 70 years now. And so I have people all the time that say, I just ran for three weeks and I don't like it. So therefore, I, I that habit won't work for me. But here we go. A study again, a study in the European Journal of Social Psychology found that it took an average of 66 days and 254 days in the longest case to replace an old habit with a new one. So what he means by 66 days on average, 254 days in the longest case is it depends on the habit. So it's going to be a lot easier to create habits on certain things than it is on others. But in a nutshell, 66 days, that's that's two months and a few days, two months and change. So if you aren't enjoying running after three weeks or four weeks or six weeks, it's okay. Hang in there. It, it still it can it can still become this habitual pattern or something that you will eventually like or turn to. So the old bad habit is not going to go go away. Poldrack says it's always going to be there, kind of bubbling in the background, ready to come back and compete with the new one. He said it takes eternal vigilance, and I don't want that to sound overwhelming. What that means is that when you create these new neural pathways and your brain files away these new habits in the habit center in this basal ganglia, that I, and I and I talk to addicts about this. The the best example I think about is somebody that had been sober for 15 years from alcohol. And, uh, but one of his cues was whenever he had Mexican food, he still longed for a beer. So the, the, the brain would yell, you know, whenever he would get Mexican food, the brain would say, Hey, uh, remember the whole beer thing? And, and so he was aware of it. And this is where he didn't say, man, stop thinking that he would say, I, I see you brain. I hear you. Um, yeah, you used to like that, right? Anyway, I'm now turning to my Diet Coke with my Mexican food. And that had become quite a habit as well. As a matter of fact, that had become a more, uh, that, that voice was yelling even louder. But the, the old habit was still sitting there going, remember me? And you can just say, I, I remember you. I do. That's it. Acknowledgement. Um, make room for that thought. Invite it. Expand. Expansion is what they call it in acceptance and commitment therapy. And then uh, turn back to the, the new habit or the, to creating those new neuropathways. So this sets the stage 
actually I skipped a, a part here. Um, there's some really good stuff here. So, um, yeah, so most common habits, uh, most common bad habits are fueled by stress, providing some kind of momentary relief. This is that experiential avoidance. So one obvious strategy is to eliminate or relieve specific stressors that cue us to light up or gnaw on our cuticles or refresh our browsers. He said, start with three standbys. Poldrack suggests getting more sleep, exercising regularly, and doing things that help center and relax you, like practicing yoga and meditation. He says, and here we go. I love this. I have episodes on this as well. Mindfulness is at the core of treatment. Uh, of a treatment developed by Judson Brewer, MD, PhD, a Brown University psychiatrist and neuroscientist. So first, Brewer takes his patients on a deep dive into their habits. He says, I call it hacking the reward-based learning system. Um, If you come to him about biting your nails, we map out what triggers the nail biting, stress, boredom, whatever. Then we really look at a reward. What am I getting from biting my nails? Am I controlling something? The next step is really exploring how rewarding that behavior is in an experiential way. What does it feel like inside my body when I'm doing it? And that might actually, uh, they may see that it actually doesn't feel good. I feel out of control. My nails look crappy. And then they start to become disenchanted with that behavior. And this sets the stage for, I really appreciated what Brewer says here. He calls it the bigger, better offer. In essence, the act of awareness of looking inward. You bring an attitude of curiosity that's more rewarding than the urge or craving, he explains. So if you have an urge to bite your nails, you actually get curious about what that urge feels like. Then you can dive into the emotions and the sensations and notice them from moment to moment. People learn that they can let go of those things and get more in control by actually being with the emotion and the sensation rather than trying to do something to change them. Man, if you can hit the back button 15, 30 seconds a minute and listen to that part again, that that's really the cue or the key of what mindfulness is. It's not trying to clear your mind of thought. It's trying to learn how to be in that moment and, and, and recognize the thought, be aware of the thought. Um, you can pay attention to the thought. What are the sensations I'm feeling as I feel triggered to do this behavior? And, and being able to say, okay, ah, oh, what are those feelings? I'm feeling, feeling a little bit anxious or I'm feeling a little bit sad or I'm feeling a little bit down. And, and where do I feel that? Do I feel it in my chest or do I feel it in my gut? You know, do I feel stressed? Do I have it up in my shoulders? You know, I can, I can kind of rub my own shoulders there. And okay, because eventually that, that siren song of temptation will pass, you know, that those, those feelings. And then if you, especially if you turn to a, a healthier habit, um, a, a healthier reward, then that becomes the new habit. So, so he, you know, he, the, the author inadvertently says, I more or less followed Brewer's basic principles on my own. When my wife verbally snapped me to attention, I took a deep look into my Twitter use and I realized it left me feeling pretty miserable, depressed, and sometimes angry to the point of trembling. He said, for all its positives, I've begun to see the platform as a toxic crucible of rage, intolerance, and unrestrained id. He said, I deleted my account, experienced an immediate sense of calm, and then felt like a moron for getting myself hooked. But he said, perhaps I should have given myself a pass. The deep biological reasons why habits are hard to break should absolve people of some of the guilt. I like that. I hope that you've stuck with me this long. Um, Poldrack says, I worry that you see so many articles like 10 simple ways to break a habit and people think, well, I, I tried that and I'm still biting my nails. And he says, and I suck. It's not your fault. It's just an abundantly hard thing to do, especially some of the habits around these evolutionary unprecedented stimuli like highly palatable foods and technology. In some ways, our brains are kind of outmatched by the modern world. So if you can't break yourself of one of those habits very easily or quickly, please do not beat yourself up. And that is, again, we're back in, in my world of, I've never seen shame be the, the, cue, the cure 
for any breaking a habit, for uh, uh, overcoming situations in one's life. And again, you know, guilt is the, man, I shouldn't do that. Shame is the, because you're a horrible piece of, you know, crud and, and you'll never get over this and everybody's going to find out and, you know, got to get rid of the shame, you know, recognize the habit, recognize the pattern. And if it's something that you don't want to do anymore, then let's just bring a little more awareness to it. Meanwhile, try to get your sleep, try to get some exercise, try to do a daily practice of mindfulness, a little bit of in through the nose, out through the mouth breathing, because what does that do? It, it, it lowers the heart rate. It gets rid of some of that fight or flight uh, response, that adrenaline, which leads to the production of cortisol, which goes in there and shuts down the prefrontal cortex, the, the rational part of your brain. So what mindfulness is truly doing is teaching you how to lower that heart rate to not chase those thoughts that, that kind of can lead to, to feeling a bit out of control and being able to be aware of your environment. Okay, what are those feelings I'm feeling? What are those sensations? And that is really the key to really getting to the bottom of this or overcoming this. Um, He had referenced earlier these 10 substitutes for body-focused habits. So I thought uh, that's at the end of this article. I love, number one, brush or massage your dog or cat. Number two, pull out threads from a piece of loosely woven muslin cloth or cheesecloth. Three, learn how to knit, crochet, or embroider. I've had some clients that have had some amazing success in, in crocheting or knitting. Um, practice origami play with silly putty or theraputty which comes in different levels of firmness Uh, play a musical instrument seven squeeze a spring-loaded hand exerciser i have these in all of my cars Uh, that is something i like to do while i'm driving talk about a stress reliever and and i don't know maybe to build some forearm muscles or that sort of thing maybe i was a big popeye fan as a kid Um, number eight make or buy jewelry such as bracelets or necklaces with beads and objects that have a lot of texture that are very tactile Number nine, keep cush balls or other feathery, rubbery toys or uh, types of toys close by. Um, Ten, I like this one, handle a piece of velvet or some other textured fabric. I've never done that one. I have my fidget cubes. I have my spinners. I have those sort of things in my office. Those really do help as well. So um, what have we learned today? Uh, Hopefully we've learned a little bit more about uh, how you can kick that bad habit. Um, how that habit cycle works, that there's a, there's a trigger, there's a thought and an action. And really trying to put distance between thought and action is the key. One of the first ways that you can do that is, is putting a behavioral intervention in there. But eventually it's learning how to sit with those thoughts and emotions, recognize them, thank your brain for bringing those to your attention, and then just turning towards some new, um, maybe a, a little bit better, a healthier of a reward. So learning to work within that system, working within that habit system, not trying to fight it. And also that it can take a little bit of time to create a new habit, to, to break through and create this new neuropathway. And that's perfectly okay. You're human. It's going to take some time. So yes, you can kick that bad habit. And uh, I would love to hear how this works for you. Um, feel free to send me an email, contact at tonyoverbay.com. And let me know. Let me know some of the success stories that you've had. If you've been able to kick a bad habit in your life and what were the things that worked for you. And I would love to maybe f- uh, feature that on a future episode of The Virtual Couch. All right. Taking us away is, as always, the wonderful, the talented Aurora Florence with her song, It's Wonderful. Have a wonderful day yourself, and I will see you next time on The Virtual Couch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside